everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I am excited to introduce to you my new co-host, Wendy. Hi, everybody. So as you all know, the last time Maddie was on, she did mention she was pregnant with her second child, which is really exciting. But as a full-time working mom and having a young daughter and now another child on the way, sometimes something has to give. And unfortunately, this was the one thing that had to give. So we're hoping beyond hope that Maddie will come back every now and then to give us one of her famous early 1800s, early 1900s, that's her time frame episodes. The door is always open. We wish her well. So I was fortunate enough because I'm going to be honest, I wasn't sure if criminal discourse was going to continue. I really love the two person podcast format and trying to find that person that loves true crime can devote the time to putting a podcast on. I wasn't sure, but stars aligned and through a friend met a Lost Tribe member. And that is Wendy. Our mutual friend, uh, Naomi, hooked us up. She knew that I was doing another podcast, the Witchfoot podcast, which has nothing to do with true crime. But she also knows that I love true crime and I always wanted to do a true crime podcast as well. So she hooked up uh, myself and Trish. Yes. And you know, it's going to work when you're sitting down for coffee, meeting each other for the first time. And you just mentioned Cielo Drive. And that person knows you're talking about the Manson family murders and you go from there. So really excited. And we have some really exciting things coming up. So stay tuned. Criminal Discourse, I know I've said it for two and a half years. We're going to do that. We're looking into it. Maybe we'll get around to it. Well, we're getting around to it now. So this first episode here is actually Wendy's episode, and I'm really excited about it. You guys have to go to the website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will see the show notes with links to everything Wendy's talking about today. It is amazing. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you, Wendy. You ready? Let's do it. All right. This case here is about Robert Bobby Freeman Sr. I picked this case for my first one. I kind of wanted to go back to where I'm originally from, the eastern part of Pennsylvania, the Lehigh Valley. I mean, I picked this one also because it's unsolved. And this year is 30 years since Robert Freeman was murdered. So it's been 30 years since his badly beaten body turned up in an eastern Pennsylvania farm field. And it seems that authorities really are not any closer to solving his murder. Uh, His sister, Rita Jones, who we'll talk a little bit more about later in the episode. She's given everything to finding his killer. And we're diving in to try to uncover any clues that there are, bring more attention back to this case and keep attention on it. Sometimes it's all you can do with a cold case like this one. This 1992 unsolved crime occurred in the northeastern United States. So that's a region of eastern Pennsylvania and western New Jersey known as the Lehigh Valley, a densely populated area built around the confluence of the Lehigh and the Delaware Rivers. The blue-collar population here thrived during its early and mid-20th century industrialization period. Quarries rich in natural resources like coal, shale, minerals, and gas provided raw materials to produce steel, concrete, other products that built national infrastructure and aided American war efforts. The area also has a river canal system, and it's close to major cities like New York and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that helped the Lehigh Valley become a prosperous hub. And then as demand for the products and labor declined over time, the region experienced some economic hardship. And if you've ever heard the song Allentown by Billy Joel, uh, he describes this decline very well. My friend just went to his concert in Madison Square Garden last night. 
stop it. I'm jealous. She did. I don't even want to know. She said it was the most amazing concert <laughs> that she'd ever been to. She said it was a bucket list concert. But yeah, his his song Allentown really highlighted the economic depression of that area. Once a major boom, a lot of families moved there, like you said, densely populated. And then as the boom went out, became very depressed. I'm very jealous. It's a bucket list item for me as well. He's one of the few that uh, continue to be very good on tour despite his his age. Yeah. And Allentown, fun fact, the song was actually written about Bethlehem, but he thought Allentown had a more American sounding name. So that is true. That is true. I'm not sure how Bethlehem would have yeah. been in that. Yeah. And being from the area, you really could interchange almost any town in that area uh, for Bethlehem. It's a similar story for all of them. And that's the kind of town Easton was where Robert Freeman was living when he was murdered. More recently, if you go to Lehigh Valley now, there's a lot of medical, professional, technological services that created new growth. But the region's industrial past is as visible as ever. Even the old Bethlehem Steel Factory now functions as an arts and community center. The victim in this case, again, Robert Bobby Freeman Sr., grew up in this region with a large family He was born on the outskirts of Phillipsburg, New Jersey. So Phillipsburg, even though it's in New Jersey, is still part of the Lehigh Valley. He eventually moved just across the river and the state border into eastern Pennsylvania. His father was a general laborer. Freeman was a welder with the maintenance crew at Ingersoll Rand for 28 years when he was murdered. So again, a a family of, of working class people, very common in that area. He lived in an apartment in Easton's Historic Center Square, which in 1992 was part of the strip where young people hung out. Today, if you go to the square, that's where the Crayola factory is. Oh, fun fact. I didn't know that. (laughs) From towns all around the Lehigh Valley, teenagers would come and cruise this area of Easton and workers like Freeman came to spend some of their hard earned money at one of several popular bars so he could just walk out of his apartment and go hang out. Co-workers, siblings, bar staff, friends, they all remembered Freeman as someone who got along with anybody. He did frequent the bars. He was known to buy other people drinks often. And he was considered to be just a terrific person. That's a quote. Just a terrific person. Freeman was a Korean War veteran. He was a member of the local American Legion post. And he would frequently offer to help people in need. Now, was he... Did he have any children? Was he married? He had many children. When you or say no. many. <laughs> oh, that, it actually incorrect. He had two children that I could find. He had many siblings. In the first article that came out after his murder, it talked about he had just celebrated his 30-year wedding anniversary. But actually, his wife, Anita, they had been separated for 15 years at the time of his death. So he did have a girlfriend at the time of his death, but him and Anita were on excellent terms. Very big family, very all living in the area, spending time together. And she, as we'll see here in a second, she led the efforts initially with his sister in finding him, figuring out what happened. She was very involved. So I think that's maybe why the newspaper emphasized the wife. On the last day that Anita saw him, his his wife that he was separated from, she had actually picked him up from work and took him to the bank to cash his paycheck, from which he gave her $20 and bought her KFC for dinner. I don't know why. This is an interesting fact to me. I love KFC. <laughs> and also, it's just, you know, it's nice. He, he needed a ride home from work. And she did it. So he gave her some money and bought her dinner for it. He's a nice guy. We'll learn about who had his car, why he needed a ride in the first place in a moment. But the consensus on Freeman was that he was a well-liked, hardworking man, not without his hardships, no more than the average Joe. The only thing really remarkable about Freeman was his size. 
So he was a smaller than average man. He was just five foot two and 130 pounds. But he balanced that out as a former boxer and a black belt in karate. Wish I could say that about myself. Mm. <laughs> Those who knew him said he never bothered anyone, but he was certainly capable of defending himself if it was necessary. Freeman's toughness was actually the reason friends and family thought early on that it had to be more than one attacker involved, despite his slight stature. So they thought there's no way one person took him out. It's just not possible. Around 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 18th, 1992, the last day Freeman was seen alive, he visited Easton Square Bar and had a few beers. This bar no longer exists, but it was located on the same center square where he lived within minutes walking distance of his home. He was supposed to be working overtime that Saturday, but this is the Firebird, the missing car, why his wife picked him up from work. His girlfriend at the time borrowed his Firebird and hadn't returned it. So it's Lent, now missing, and in fact, it's unclear whether he knew this or it was discovered after he was murdered, but his girlfriend lent the car to someone else who took it to New York City to buy drugs. This is probably 30-minute drive from Easton. Freeman's plan was to walk the few blocks to her apartment to get it, but he wound up at the bar instead. Well, there was a bar pretty much, if I'm thinking of towns somewhere in that area, there's pretty much a bar on every street. In the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, every like every, every corner. <laughs> we know that Freeman went to the square bar around 11 a.m. He returned to the square bar around 4.30 p.m. with a male friend. But in that five and a half hours in between, Freeman made a few stops and filed a police report. So here it gets interesting. First, he and a male friend stopped at a nearby business to return a remote control box, but the store was closed. Next, they headed to another Easton bar, the College Hill Tavern, and had a beer there before returning back to the square bar. At some point during this afternoon, Freeman contacted the police and told them that a woman he met at the square bar took $450 from his jacket at a residence in the 1700 square block of Northampton Street. So Northampton Street is the part of the strip that runs through Center Square. So this is part of that same location. And it's likely but not specifically stated that this is the residence of that male friend he's hanging out with that afternoon. $450. Did he just get paid or was he known to carry large amounts of cash on him? Well, I think this was payday. So, well, this is the day after payday. So the day before is when he cashed his paycheck with his his ex-wife. The woman who stole this money from him was actually a known prostitute. Her name was Mary Ann Pierce. I couldn't find anything about her or this arrest. She lived on another street in Easton. It doesn't appear that Freeman or his friends were soliciting her services. They were just hanging out in the same social circle. Police did visit her residence. They didn't find Freeman's money, but they did find, oddly enough syringes and other items and charge Pierce with possession of drug paraphernalia. I'm sure Mary wasn't too pleased with that. Mary probably was not happy about the drug paraphernalia charge, but she did have that $450 somewhere. Where did it go? Around 6.30 p.m., Freeman's male friend, who got him into this situation with Marianne Pierce, left Square Bar, and eventually Freeman does too. Reports vary as to whether he left alone, but he was next seen at a place called Ferris's Cafe over in Phillipsburg. This was located at the intersection of Stockton and Sitgreaves Streets in Phillipsburg. It's not there anymore. If he didn't get a ride from someone or have his car back yet, that walk is approximately 25 minutes at the most. If he's a fit guy, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Was this a bar he had frequented? To, I mean, to make that walk after such a long day. Drinking and getting drinking, money stolen. Getting money, yes. <laughs> Filing a police report. 
like, was he meeting someone there? Or is this something he he really liked this? My cafe, I would imagine this is kind of another drinking establishment. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the square bar, it doesn't mention him being there a lot in the newspaper articles, but it was right by where he lived. So I infer Ferris's cafe, they did interview the owner who talks about him being at that establishment frequently. And that Phillipsburg would be his hometown where his where he was raised right across the river. The bar staff remembers about 15 patrons at Ferris's cafe that night. Two of them bought Freeman a drink while he was there. None of them can remember exactly when he left, though. This is a location where Freeman was last seen alive. The reports vary as to exactly when he left and with whom. It's anywhere from 7.30 p.m. to midnight. Oh, that's a... And I would imagine back then, these places did not have surveillance cameras. No, no, ma'am. <laughs> oh, please don't call me ma'am. Wow, I just got aged. <laughs> for emphasis, the ma'am for emphasis. They did not. On Monday, so Friday was the last day his estranged wife saw him. Saturday was the day he was at the bars, the last day he was seen alive. By Monday, January 20th, 1992, Anita, again, this is his estranged wife, she files a missing persons report. She also joined his sister, Rita, in searching the bars that he was known to frequent. And they discovered his car in the parking lot of Ferris's Cafe. So this is another, we assume he was at Ferris's Cafe quite a bit because they showed up there. It's not mentioned how or when Freeman recovered his car from his girlfriend, right? She lent it to someone who took it up to New York to buy drugs. But here the Firebird is. It turns up in the last place Freeman was seen alive with the keys still in the ignition. Rita drove the car back to Anita's house while the police searched the parking lot for evidence. They found the temple piece of his eyeglasses traces of blood, the chain of his wallet, and some loose change. Police hypothesize that Freeman was beaten here at Ferris's cafe, but they aren't sure he was killed there. And at this point, they're not even sure he's dead. So a question I have is Rita drove the car back to Anita's house. The police didn't impound it. This is a missing vehicle. They're finding evidence in the parking lot. Traces of blood. He's nowhere to be seen since Saturday. And they're not processing the vehicle for fingerprints, for blood in the car, blood in the trunk. I mean, I just am baffled. I was too. This is where I've made some attempts. We're going to try to get in touch with Rita Jones here, Freeman's sister. She, the articles mention her doing her own interviews of witnesses, her own investigation. She has a binder full of articles, witness interviews, details, clues that she's collected over the decades about this case. None of the articles mention the police investigating the car. That seems to me like it would have additional evidence. If the car's in the parking lot and there's blood in the parking lot, there should be something in the car as well. But no, none of the articles mention any investigation of the vehicle by the police at all, which is frustrating. Do any of the articles mention or did anyone ask the police why they didn't impound the car and process it? No. Mm. Okay. <laughs> the other interesting thing that I, I noted when I was looking at the articles is there's nothing that says about him being a miss missing person. Only after they discover his body do we see any articles about his case at all. And this is one week after we last see Freeman alive at approximately 4 p.m., on, now, this is the following Saturday, January 25th, 1992, an Easton farmer, he ended up discovering Freeman's body in one of his fields. The property owner was walking in an area to check on some corn he put out to feed deer. And this I found interesting because he placed the corn the following Thursday. He noted that the deer had eaten it. So 
This kind of confused me too. It might be nothing. It might just be how it was written in the article. But does this mean that Freeman's body wasn't placed there until Thursday at the earliest after the farmer left the corn? Because if he put the corn there, didn't see the body, comes back on Saturday, the body's there. There's there's some weird timeline things here. He goes missing on Saturday. Farmer puts the corn on Thursday. No body. Next Saturday, there's a body. It's It's suspicious. Right. Where was his body for you know, Saturday night till Thursday when the farmer put out the corn and didn't see him there. We don't even know if he was dumped Thursday. He could have been dumped Friday. Right. The timeline starts to get very strange. We have a lot more to this story, but we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor with a special offer for our listener. Here at Criminal Discourse, we are excited to share our new partnership with Manscaped. What is Manscaped, you ask? Manscaped is a male grooming company that delivers the right precision tools so that a man can safely manscape. They do this by custom engineering and specifically designing products that are both hygienic and safe to use on one's family jewels. So to share with you all some firsthand knowledge about these products, Manscaped sent us their performance package to have the men in our lives try them out to give you an honest review. So my husband, who you've all heard me refer to before as our tech support here at Criminal Discourse, was impressed with the Weed Whacker, which is the nose and ear trimmer. He said that he liked how it handled, especially since he didn't have to manipulate it around to make sure he got everything he was trying to trim up. He said it was quick, efficient, plus easy to clean, much better than the trimmer he currently has. So don't wait. Go to manscaped.com and when you put in our code CDP20 for Criminal Discourse Podcast 20, you will get an additional 20% off. Oh, And did I mention the free shipping? Wendy, how about your husband? Well, my husband really liked everything from the top down. It started with the packaging. And ladies, we might not realize it, but our men like gifts too. His review of the Lawnmower 4.0 was a revolution if you've ever tried grooming down there without something like it. He says, smooth sailing, guys, no fear. The best part was the built-in light that makes it easy to see what you're doing. Plus, He's sure to be purchasing more of the Crop Preserver, the anti-chafing ball deodorant, in case you're wondering what that is. If you have difficulty figuring out a gift for that special man in your life, look no further than Manscaped, the perfect gift that will upgrade their scaping experience and have their mountain oysters feeling revitalized in no time. Don't wait. Check them out. And don't forget to use our code CDP20 to get an additional 20% off plus free shipping. This ad was sponsored by Manscaped. Now back to our episode. Police, the coroner performing the autopsy, the property owner describing Freeman's body. They all said it was in a badly beaten condition. They said his body was frozen, lying face down, clad in thin shorts and the remnants of a sweatshirt. I don't know what the middle of January is like where you live in Pennsylvania. It's frigid. There were stab wounds to his hands, wrist, torso, claw hammer blows to his head. And in what can only be described as an act of overkill... Uh, which I would think was either out of rage or to make a statement, Freeman's injuries were consistent with having been run over by a car. And we don't know if that's the Firebird because they didn't process any of the Firebird. That we're aware of. Yeah, exactly. So again, 
If anything appeared in local news outlets about Freeman's disappearance, it's not easily accessible today. The first article on Freeman that I could find, it appears Monday, January 27, 1992. So that's two days after his body was found, a week and two days after he went missing. Other than a single sentence giving Freeman's age and address, the remainder of that first article was really only about the farmer, his discovery, his emotions, what his wife felt about it, the condition of the body. Subsequent articles do elaborate more on Freeman's life character, the investigation surrounding his death. I'm not saying that it doesn't, you know, reflect a lack of police effort initially, but it does make me feel that way when I'm going back and reflecting on everything in total. Maybe it was just a lack of media attention, not police effort. Freeman's sister, Rita, as we've talked about, she's largely responsible for keeping attention on her brother's case, but she really has little to show for it. By 1994, she had invested in fruitless calls to telephone psychics. These were a big deal in the 90s. They were. (laughs) She sent unfulfilled pleas to the Unsolved Mysteries television series, asking for her brother's case to be on the show, but there were more pressing ones at that time. She fundraised and promoted a cash reward for tips that have yet to lead to an arrest. She conducted her own investigation. She shared every piece of information and evidence she collected with police. And she maintains those personal case files to this day. How old is Rita today? Rita's 92. He has some younger siblings. A lot of them have passed away. But it would be very nice to be able to give her some kind of closure. Yes. However, Rita thinks she solved it. (laughs) Okay, Rita. Who is our prime suspect? Our prime suspect here is Theodore LeCour. He's not a nice guy, but I can't help but enjoy saying his name. It's got a ring to it. Yes, it does. He was known as Theodore LeCour at the time of the murder. He is now known as Thor Fry. He is Rita's prime suspect. She claims that she interviewed Ferris's Cafe's patrons and they witnessed Fry and others picking a fight with Freeman the night that he went missing. And this is the same night that he was presumably murdered. Well, we don't know. He could have been kept somewhere. Additionally, Freeman's girlfriend at the time, we don't know her name either. We assume it's the same girlfriend who he let the firebird to, told Rita details about Fry's involvement and even gave her a personal item of Freeman's that the girlfriend says Fry obtained during the murder. And Rita has that personal item. Rita has it. Police say they investigated Fry, but, quote, found no evidence linking him to the crime and he was excluded as a suspect, end quote. When the girlfriend gave Rita the personal item, was this right after Freeman's body was discovered? Was this years later? Was, I mean, 30 years have almost passed. I'm just curious because to me, yeah, this is my brother's tested for DNA. It was given to me by her who says she got it from him. So there's a connection, a link. Mm hmm. The article did not say when it was given to her. It was just in a a litany of other items. And my feeling on it is if it was his girlfriend, she could have had his personal items for any reason. And I'm highly suspicious of this girlfriend until I find out more details about the Firebird and the drug deal, personally. True. Either way, suspicious. So to me, as an outside observer, I do feel it's just as likely with this information so far that his girlfriend was involved and could be framing Fry, or at least trying to shift the burden of blame more fully onto him. If she's not directly responsible for Freeman's murder, perhaps the person she lent the firebird to is, and she shares some of the knowledge or guilt by association. Unfortunately, without getting in touch with Rita, which we're trying, we don't know the girlfriend's name or any other information to research in connection with her background or her claims. 
despite that official dismissal of Fry, it is really hard to ignore Rita's conviction that he's the guy who did this and the fact that Fry is very much a bad guy capable of this crime. He's currently in prison for murdering a woman by beating in suffocation during a 2006 robbery in Phillipsburg, the same town where Ferris's cafe was located. That's where Freeman went missing. That's where his car was found. That's where the blood was found in the parking lot. There are about a dozen separate reported incidents easily found online from about 1985 through the 1990s of Fry committing theft, check forgery, assault, everything else in the Lehigh Valley area, especially in Easton and Phillipsburg, which, of course, is where Freeman's body, the missing vehicle, everything else with this crime was located. Police theorized that there was more than one attacker, similar to Freeman's friends and family. Fry was arrested with accomplices on several occasions. Most notably was an incident in January of 1992, actually on that Friday. So in between when he was missing and when his body was found, the Friday in between, the 24th of 1992, Fry and a gentleman named Barry Walbert not much of a gentleman, of Easton. They got a ride at Easton Center Square from a woman who said she was later forced out at knife point and abandoned. Then her car was recovered in Phillipsburg. In 1997, Wolbert was also wanted in connection with a bank robbery. I read this and I was thinking, could Fry and Wolbert have carjacked Freeman in a similar fashion? And then Freeman chose to fight them and lost. Seems kind of similar. Happened the same week. In 1996, Fry was arrested with uh, Brian Gruler of Easton for stealing cash from Coates and the Coates themselves at a Phillipsburg dry cleaner. This was four years after Freeman's murder, but it stands out to me because Freeman had money stolen from his jacket on the last day he was seen alive by Marianne Pierce. And the leather jacket he wore that day, the last day he was seen alive, was never recovered, so presumably stolen as well. Such is odd to me that this Thor Fry Rita is accusing of murdering her brother also was known for stealing money from Coates and Coates, and that happened to Freeman the day that he died. Presumably that he died. Gruler, the accomplice in this crime, his criminal record includes weapons and drug charges as well as domestic assault and death threats. Also another bad dude. Do we know, is or was there any information related to Freeman's autopsy? Were they able to locate a time of death? I know he was outside in the elements and he was frozen, so I'm sure that threw everything completely off. If they did, they haven't shared it under the guise of even the details about the claw hammer marks, for example. That didn't come until Article 20 years later because initially it's, you know, we have to keep these details close to the chest because it's an open investigation. So a lot of the details haven't even come out until much later. And that's one of them. We don't have an estimated time of death. Or if we do, Rita has it. (laughs) Rita, if you hear this, reach out to us. So police also theorize that Freeman knew his killers. I think this is just because of the area. There wasn't really an explanation as to why he might know them otherwise. Fry and his associates are lifelong Lehigh Valley locals. So Fry and all these bad dudes he's hanging out with. They all live in this area where Freeman is hanging out as well. They're frequent travelers of the places where Freeman lived past his time, and we know that Fry and some of these others are capable of very similar crimes. But ability, feasibility, that does not necessarily translate to motive, let alone evidence. So there are some other theories that we have to keep in mind. One we can't overlook is the fact that there were numerous drug busts at the Square Bar, specifically, and Easton downtown generally in the early 1990s. 
While Freeman was known to be strongly opposed to drug use per his friends and family, the locations where such activity occurred were some of his favorite haunts. Favorite haunts being a quote from friends and family as well. His acquaintances were involved in that lifestyle. See his friend meeting with a prostitute who stole money from him on the last day he was seen. Consider Freeman's girlfriend who lent his car to someone for a drug deal. Police leaned heavily into their robbery gone wrong theory, especially since Freeman had already been robbed earlier that afternoon and therefore had nothing to give up if he was held up later that day. That might enrage someone enough to kill him or try to get something more out of the attack. Adding to that robbery motive, police never recovered all of his personal items, including valuables like his leather jacket and some of his jewelry. It's also possible that after Marianne Pierce was investigated and charged for drug possession as a result of Freeman's report, kind of what you alluded to, Trish, that she or an accomplice sought some retribution. Prostitutes sometimes have pimps. They might have come after him later for getting her in trouble. That or they might be able to get more cash and valuables than what she had already stolen from him. Another theory police tossed around were mistaken identity theories. They admitted that these were unlikely given Freeman's noticeably small stature. He did have a son, a junior, who was arrested for drug dealing, and someone out for a junior might have accidentally attacked senior instead. That's possible. Was he the same height as his dad? No. Okay, because that really 5'2 stands out. It stands out. So it would have to be someone who didn't physically see the person they were going after, someone who was sent and didn't have a description, maybe. Or the firebird could come back into play here, as the New York City drug dealer might have been seeking the, the buyer who borrowed it from Freeman's girlfriend or the girlfriend. And if they found the car, but they knew Freeman wasn't the person they were after... Maybe the situation still could have escalated to murder. That's possible. So one more theory to consider is Freeman's affiliation with the Golden Arrow Motorcycle Club. We haven't talked about this yet, but in addition to that boxing, in addition to that black belt in karate, he was a member of a motorcycle club. The Golden Arrows were not well known as a particularly criminal element, but there were violent motorcycle clubs active in the Lehigh Valley at the time. And this could have been an act of club rivalry that was tossed around in some newspaper articles. Seems the least likely. But we would be foolish to ignore that Freeman was a black man in a predominantly white community, and some motorcycle clubs are known for white supremacist values. Racism combining with the crowd that Freeman was mingling in, maybe that made him a target of deadly violence. So as far as hopefulness, <laughs> a grand jury, they did nearly hear Freeman's case both in 1999 and 2010. So there was almost enough evidence. They didn't hear the cases, though, because of newer, more pressing cases. The Northampton County District Attorney, John Morganelli, has assured the family and the public that Freeman's unsolved homicide is still an active case. He did present it to a grand jury in 2012 and 2014. But there's been no more information, suspects, charges, nothing new. Within the last decade, authorities have broached the idea of submitting Freeman's case evidence for DNA testing. There were some questions about the cost of this, of course. Given the violent nature of the crime, multiple crime scenes, and the era when this crime took place, it does seem likely that, maybe more likely than with many other unsolved cases, that viable DNA could be found if police had properly collected and preserved it at the time. And I think there may also be some weapon or other scientific analysis, such as tire tracks on or near the body that could open new investigative doors. Beyond all of that, it feels impossible for no one out and about that night to have seen something. Perhaps they haven't come forward to police with what they know. There's always that hope. 
As distant as resolution may seem in a case like this, we will not only continue to hope for it, but also hope for it to come in time for Rita and the rest of Freeman's loved ones to enjoy it. I think that's the most we can do. Yeah. So check out the show notes, guys. There's going to be a picture of the victim. Mm -hmm. And also, I believe you put together the evidence and a list of suspects and all of their details in there. It's quite thorough. Yes. And I also have a map of the locations. If you want to look at that, I'm that kind of person. I want to see the visuals. I love it. I love details. (laughs) So it is an interesting case. It is an unsolved case. We're coming on 30 years here. Or has it been 30 years? It was 30 years in January. Yeah. So 30 years have passed. So if someone knows something, come forward. It's 30 years. And Miss Rita is not getting younger. She's not. And God love her. She's carried this burden for 30 years trying to solve her brother's murder. So check out all of the details on our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. Again, on there, you will find all of our show notes, all of our resources, everything that we look at to bring you these episodes. This was so much fun. Thank you guys for, I assume you're welcoming me right now. I assume you loved it. I hope you did. And I hope to talk to you many more times. Right. So we hope to branch out into some more cold cases. We have done a couple of them in the past that have not been solved. I'm thinking season one, we did Courtney Stauffer's case from Mm -hmm. Palmyra, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. More recently, we recorded the Maya Mialete case from San Diego, California. I don't believe she has been found. And her husband, I still think, is awaiting trial. They did press charges against him, but he has not gone to court yet for that. So yeah, we hope to bring you a lot more of these cold cases. If you have any case suggestions for us, and there's enough information that we can put together an episode, we'd be more than happy to highlight that here to use this podcast as a platform to bring awareness and attention to these cases that sometimes I know families fight very hard to keep in the media, to keep attention on it to put pressure on the police. And thankfully, more now than ever, police are putting cold case units together. They are re-examining these cases. And like you said, if evidence has been collected and properly stored, and there's the monies that can pay for the DNA testing, a lot of cases have been solved that way. more recently than anything. And it would be nice to give Miss Rita and her family some closure for their brother's murder. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We greatly appreciate it. And the only thing we would ask is that if you've enjoyed what you've heard today on whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could leave us a review, that would be great. If you could leave us a five star, that would be even better. And if you're thinking about Father's Day gifts, Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. How could I forget? So we have our first sponsor, guys. How about that? Two and a half years later. We do. And as Wendy said, if you are thinking of Father's Day gifts on May 23rd, you can go to manscaped.com. And that's yes, you might be thinking, why are two women true crime podcasters talking about male grooming products because Manscaped is an amazing company for one thing. Check out their website. Very detailed how-to, great products, but you can put in the code CDP20 for 20% off their products. And it's free shipping. What? (laughs) What? Who doesn't love free shipping? So you can go there and Father's Day gifts, if you have that hard to buy for man in your life, check. And they're great products. They're tongue and cheeky in, in terms of what they call their products. Excellent reviews. Easy to use. Safe skin technology. Because down there, 
Hmm. You don't want to be messing around. Just keep Manscaped in mind and keep criminal discourse in mind for Father's Day. I promise they'll go together. In some way. (laughs) Yes, they will. I'm not sure in what ways. All right, guys. So you can also check out not only our website, but we have a Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast. We have an Insta, Criminal Dis Pod, D-I-S-P-O-D. We also have a YouTube channel. And Twitter. And we're going to be doing a lot more now that not only is Wendy a tribe member of True Crime, but she is my go-to marketing background guru. Uh-oh. I know. Secrets I'm putting out. pressure. I'm putting pressure. <laughs> but she's going to be amazing. And we hope to do a lot more with this. So we thank you all for staying with us. Like I said, we're hoping to have Maddie back to do an episode when she can fit it into her overwhelming life schedule, which... True that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Take it easy. That's that's the message today. Whatever you do, take it easy. That is correct. <laughs> All right, guys. So as I always in the episode, if you see something, say something. And this case is an example of that. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime, especially a 30-year-old cold case. Don't be afraid to come forward and tell authorities what you know. Yep. And they would reach out to the Phillipsburg Police Department or Easton? Easton, because that's where his body was found. Yep. So Northampton County. Northampton County, Pennsylvania, the Easton Police Department. If you have any information, reach out to them. And until next time, we want you to be safe, but we also need to be looking out for one another and to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. Bye. Bye.